0: Amen. You may be seated. If you got your Bible today, or since you're on your phone, I guess you've got it on your phone, <laughs> you can turn with me to James chapter 1, and we're going to hear again from kind of the second section of James's first chapter here, beginning in verse 12 through 21. I'm really going to focus today mostly on just verses 16 through 18, but we'll read the context a little bit. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you, Lord, to move among us now by your spirit as we hear this word and change us. In Jesus we ask. Amen. About 18 months ago I had a very curious experience under the care of a doctor. I was in the doctor's office and I was having some therapy done on my back. And partway through the therapy, I had the most bizarre moment where, all of a sudden, as this doctor was kind of loosening things up in my in along my spine, I very embarrassingly began weeping uncontrollably, like just bawling. Uh, it just kind of came out of nowhere, as. My physical tension released. All this emotion kind of exploded to the surface. Related, last Sunday I had the opportunity to to talk a little bit with a Christian psychotherapist. And she said something very interesting to me about trauma. We were talking about trauma and ministering to people who have been traumatized. And she said trauma lodges in the body. It actually, the feelings of trauma, they actually... Connect to certain parts of your body and they kind of stay there and there's a kind of almost muscle memory where certain things will trigger that trauma and you'll have almost the experience of the trauma over again as just a physical reaction. Also related, the recent legalization of recreational use of cannabis has brought before the body of Christ once again the question of the ethics of stimulants be they whatever stimulant you might think of, what are the ethics of using a stimulant to change your state of mind? And I'd like you to notice in those three cases that I've just mentioned, the interaction between what we call the soul, um, the part of you that thinks and feels and desires and chooses, the connection between that part of you and the body. You know, for me, under the doctor's care, there was this very strange release of very deep and actually morally significant emotion because of something happening to my body. In the case of the trauma victim, there can be an instinctive social aversion or social attraction that is triggered by something in the body with stimulant use, whether it's alcohol, caffeine, sugar, whatever it might be. Your state of mind, your emotional state, can actually be altered, perhaps to one that it feels extremely calm or very clear, where you can feel more inhibited, inhibited or less inhibited, more celebratory, less celebratory, by using something in your body. All of that is connected to your body. The physical and the psychological in human beings are joined together. I read an amazing book this week by a man named Matthew Lepine called The Logic of the Body, and he summed up his basically everything I'm trying to say right now, in a very simple but very full sentence. He said, our entire agency, so you're just not a blob of protoplasm, right? You're an agent in the world. You are a thinking, feeling, desiring, willing creature. You're not just like a stick of wood. You're, you have agency in the world. You are an agent who can do things and change things. He says, our entire agency is qualified by physicality, by having a body. There's a lot to think about there, and I want to bring that into the conversation that we started last week about desires and how desire tempts us. Because you can see in verses 12 through 15 here, where James is talking about when you're in a hard time, it's easy to think God is tempting you and he says don't think that God doesn't tempt people to evil you're tempted when you are lured by your own desire you really can't hear that without thinking about you can't if you know your Bible you'll, you'll hear the echoes there of Genesis chapter 3 the story where the serpent tempts Adam and Eve with that fruit you know they're, they're in paradise or have a their life's good you know but there's that tree and God said don't eat of that tree but oh but it's good for food and it's pleasant to the eyes and it'll make you wise it'll make you like God And James is kind of reminding us here, ever since that first sin, human beings, he says in verse 14, 15 rather, desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin, sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. We die because of sin. Death, you know, the awful thing that death is, it entered the world because human beings are sinners, because we rebel against God, but we sin because we desire. We sin because we want something desire is the deadly womb that spawns sin against God. And that's a big issue for, you know, James's readers and for us today, because if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be a Christian, you're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have, James said earlier in the chapter, you're going to have what he calls various trials. Life is going to have some hard times. And those trials are going to cross your desires, I mean, how many of you, when you are in a really tough time in your life, when God has kind of like turned up the heat under your life and things are hard, how many of you find yourself naturally wanting to keep on trusting God? Man, I just want to keep on worshiping. I just want to keep on obeying. I just want to keep loving. I I want to keep, you know, plowing the fields God has called me to plow. I, I want to keep on enduring. The reality is when God really turns the heat up, there are days I don't want to do any of that. I of, I'll want out. tell you what I want. I want out of the fire, thank you very much. I want a nice, cool place to sit and, you know. And desire's pulling you away at that point from what God wants for you. So how do you resist that pull of desire? Well, James answers that in a remarkable way, beginning in verse 16. He says, don't be deceived. The serpent's in your ear. Don't be deceived. You've got to silence those unruly desires. But it's very interesting how he says you're going to silence them. You're not going to silence them by eradicating the desire. Man, beloved, please don't, don't, don't put too much weight on your willpower. Any of you who have ever been in a serious, thoughtful, have talked to people in a treatment program or, or you yourself have been in a treatment program, you know this is a basic principle of recovery. You do not recover from a serious life-controlling addiction by willpower. You do not reach down, pull up your bootstraps, and say, I'm just going to stop wanting to drink. I'm just going to stop my anger problem. I'm going to stop looking at porn. I'm going to stop, you know, lusting after a woman who's not my wife. I'm going to stop anxiety. Really? I mean, that'll get you a few yards down the road, maybe, but there comes a point. Willpower is just not enough. How does James tell us we're going to silence unruly desires? Not by killing the desire directly, but by training new desires. Better desires. I told you last week, Thomas Chalmers has that great expression, the expulsive power of a new affection. So, today, when I, want, I want to ask two questions as we talk through this. I want to ask as we're training our desires, not away from God, we're, we're putting those, we're, gonna, we're going to silence those unruly desires pulling us away from God by training new desires and maybe in some cases retraining desires. But in doing that, two things. How crucial is it to know God as Father? How crucial is it to know God as Father? And secondly, what's the role of the body? What's the role of the body in retraining desires? Let's talk about the love of the Father then the role of the body. First, the love of the Father. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father. Now, if you kind of distill it, being a, what's being a Christian? Being a Christian is very basically, it's being introduced to God the Father by God the Son. That's really what being a Christian actually is. Through Jesus, the Son of God, you discover that the maker of heaven and earth, like just try to, you know, in our tiny little boxes we live in, you got to get out and like look at the world sometimes. The, The God who made all of this, who flung all of this into existence with his word, that maker of heaven and earth, has made a way through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, to putting your sins on Jesus, killing his son for your sins, raising his son after his son has paid the price in full, the maker of heaven and earth through that has made a way for you and me. You know, nice, cuddly, little, lovable human beings. No, for you and me, traitors against the the God of, of the cosmos, rebels against the true king, orphans who have no claim on the love of God at all, God has made a way for, through Jesus for us to come back into life, and not just life, but life forever as his children. That's basically what it, to, to know that is to be a Christian. What we call the gospel, you know, the, the good news about Jesus, it's just simply announcing God has reversed the alienation between us. Once we were far from God, we're not anymore. Once there was this massive alienation, but there's not anymore. God has forgiven our sins. He has removed his condemnation. There is no more death for us. We are forgiven. We are loved. We are adopted by God. That's that's what it means. God is our Father. But it's interesting, James goes on to say, it's not just that the Father willed that there would be a way back to him, a way back into his family. Notice verse 18 God wanted us to know that. God wanted us to hear that good news and believe it. I mean, I, I, can, I can open the door of my home this afternoon, and y'all are welcome, but if you don't get an invitation, if I don't, like, send someone to get you, God had to not just open the way on his end for us to be received, but then he, he came after us. And James says in verse 18, of his own will. Now, no. What we need to hear when when James says that is God wanted this. God wanted this. Of his own will, he spoke the word of truth into your heart. You know, you didn't just hear it with your ears. Somehow, God, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That means God got his word of truth inside of you. He got it into your head and your heart and your beliefs and, 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 and convinced you inwardly that it was true that jesus really is the savior that the bible says he is that the gospel says he is that the way of salvation is as full and free as the gospel says it is and what happened is that word like came into you and and the holy spirit of god enabled you to actually believe that the good news is true what happened well just like unruly desires That womb of unruly desire brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death, James says. There was a different birth here. God, by that word of truth, that good news about his Son, that word brought you forth. The word of God brought you to believe and come and receive and rest and enjoy the simple fact that God is now for you. God loves you. God forgives you. You can belong to him. You can be his child, and you can become a sheaf. Now, we're not in farm country here on Long Island, but if you lived in farm country in the old agrarian societies, you would know what a sheaf is. A sheaf is like one stalk of grain. It's a bundle of grain. It's part of the harvest. And God has made you, by bringing you into life by his word of truth, He's made you a, a sheaf in his harvest, a sheaf in his new creation. Now, we're not the first fruits. These readers are the first fruits two, two millennia ago. We're like the 21st century fruits. But that's the idea. You, you've been brought into this new creation because you're now back living with God as he made humans to live. And Jesus puts this very, uh, he says it another way, what James is saying here in John 6 when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Father makes the way for us to be his children, but then he draws us. He gets the word into us. He births us into life. But it's very interesting to me, and what i kind of like to just camp on for a second here. The word of truth, this good news about Jesus bringing us back to the Father, it doesn't just give us information. I mean, what I'm saying right now, every one of you have heard it many, many times, but the gospel is not just data points. It's not just... Information, the gospel, when, as, as we begin to believe it and, and meditate on it and, and embrace it, it, it begins to form your imagination. Because what's going on in verses 17 and 18, this is, this is if you really get this, it's going to change the way you narrate the world. It's going to change the way you tell the story of your life in the world. What, what James is saying here about the Father and what He has done for us through His word of truth. This is giving you the big plot, and it's telling you who the characters are and where you fit into the story, and it's shaping your imagination. Now, what does he say in verse 17? What is the imagination-shaping picture he gives us in verse 17? Here's how you need to think about the world, he says. Here's how you need to think about the story you're living in. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And basically, very simply, what he's saying is this. The, the God who authored creation, because I think when James says every good gift, he's probably, for a Jewish reader, he, they would have been thinking about creation, because what did God say when he made the heavens and the earth? God saw all that he had made. What did he say? It's good. These are good gifts. All this that I've made, this is very good. Every good gift... And it's amazing, you know, I'm in the middle of trying to grow grass. I'm obsessive about growing grass. Uh, my, my, my lawn irritates me, and so I'm always trying to grow grass. And I planted a bunch of grass this year, and, you know, I've been watching it for the better part of a week. And I had this dark moment uh, yesterday afternoon where I was looking at my lawn, feeling sorry for myself, and I realized after, you know, more money than I wanted to spend on all this grass, I was like, you know, it's not going to grow. It's not going to grow. It just looks dead. It looks like dirt. It looks like no grass at all. And then you wake up the next morning, and there's this first little shoot of, of grass. Like, this is the world God made. The, the world is amazing. It is just so full of life, and, and it always comes through. You know, you look at winter, and it feels like it'll never be spring. You look at the dirt. How can it grow? And yet, suddenly, there's a crop and a harvest. This is, these are the good gifts. The, the God who made all of that, every good gift, he's also the giver of every perfect gift. He's not just the author of creation, but he's the author of new creation, Because when James uses the word perfect, we've talked about this in previous weeks, perfect is the idea of God taking what he has made and bringing it to be everything it had potential to be. It is the maturity, the fulfillment, the completeness, the wholeness of what God intended it to be. And that's not creation, that's God's new creation. That's this thing God is doing through Jesus, in which every good gift becomes perfect. Everything in creation is brought to completion. Where God, through Jesus, is restoring to fullness what he made things to be. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, God is uniting all things in Christ. He made all things through, through his Son. Now he's putting all things back together through his Son. So the good gifts are the, will become the perfect gifts through the Son. And all of that's the world you're living in. That's your story. That's the big picture. That's the imaginative space that we inhabit. But he goes on to say, at the end of verse 17, there's something you need to know about the Father. Because unlike the goodness of his gifts, and they're good. Creation gifts are good. New creation gifts are good. But unlike the goodness of those gifts, you need to know that the Father's goodness, the Father's goodness never changes. He's the father of lights with whom there's no variation or flickering or shadow. Now, you know, there's nothing probably stabler in all of creation than the lights. These are the, Remember, this was like the first thing God made. Let there be what? Let there be light. And he made the sun and moon and stars to regulate everything else in creation, to, be, to set times and seasons. They, they kind of govern the entire creation. They are stable steady, lasting gifts of God. And yet every cosmic light has its shadow. Every light on earth will have a moment when it flickers. And James says, not so the God who made these things. Not so the Father of those lights. His care, how does John put it? God is light And in him there is what? There is no darkness at all. His care never wavers because his purpose never wavers because his love never wavers because his goodness never wavers. That's your father. You know, you don't believe that. It seems like that's just too much to take in. Well, it's all really displayed for us in Jesus, isn't it? You want to see that the father's love for you is infinite, that there's no cost it won't pay. Just look at Jesus. What cost would he not pay? You want to see a love that's eternal, that never dies, never ends? You look at Jesus. He said, I'm the great great shepherd. I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch, snatch them out of my hand. That's eternal love. You want to see a love that's unchangeable. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, again, about Jesus. You want to see the unchangeable love of God. Listen to what he says One of my favorite verses in the Bible. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no none of this he loves me he loves me not but in Jesus it's always yes for all the promises of God find their yes in him that's why it's through Jesus that we utter our amen to God for his glory God isn't saying yes and no to you through Jesus one day you're good the next day you're not one day he's for you the next day not so much it's just yes the promises of God are just yes in Jesus and because they're unchangeably yes that's why you can say amen Amen, a steady amen to God because his promises are steadily yes in Jesus. And all of this is sort of captured in 2 Corinthians chapter four when Paul puts these things together very much like James does. And he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable glory of God in the face of whom? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's the reality you're living in. That's the story you're living in. That's the imaginative space in which you live. And you know, I, you guys, are most of you are pretty seasoned Christians. You know, you have to come back to this because nothing here you don't know. But it's not knowing it as a matter of information that's the challenge, is it? It's the fact that there are so many times in our life we have to come back to this again and again. This is my father. Because there are so many times when it just doesn't look like your father's still that generous. It doesn't look like God is still as generous as the day he made the world. It doesn't look in your life today like God is still as bountifully generous as the day he raised Jesus from the dead. It doesn't feel right now like your father is as overflowingly good and generous to you as the day he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It doesn't feel like it, Lord, because I'm in the fire. That's when you need to come back to this and realize this is still your father. There's not a flicker with him. You flicker. Gosh, you almost go out. You're on the brink of just being snuffed out most of the time if you're anything like me. Your father is no flicker. There's no shadow. He doesn't change. He is faithful. He is as good, infinitely good as he has ever been and will ever be. You are, will never be more loved than you are today by this father in heaven. When your desires get unruly, this is what we need to hear. And sink our roots down into this until my perspective on life matches reality. Until what's going on in here is the truth. Until my desires are drawn not to the things that are saying it'll be better away from your father, my desires are drawn toward the father himself. That's the love of the father. That's the God who brought you forth. But you know, everything I've said so far, it's all still theoretical, it's still in our minds. And what I want to say today, next, is that getting a hold of this cannot be a theoretical exercise. This requires that we get our bodies engaged as well as our minds. And I want to talk now just a little bit about the the role of the body in, in getting a hold of our Father as he presents himself here. Because... We're going to see this in James. I, I love James because James, he, he, he speaks a pastor's language. You know, there, there, are theory, there are theory people in this world. Pastors don't get to be theory people. Being a pastor is a little bit more like being a, a parent. You know, you, you can read books about parenting, but the reality is then you got the kid, the child, or more than one. And then you realize it's got to get real. And James is a get real kind of guy. You know, in, in bringing his readers back to the father of lights, bringing them back to that word of truth by which God brought you forth, We're going to see throughout the letter, James is pretty hardcore about this. He wants his readers to hear the word. He wants them to look into the word, but what does he also want them to do? He says, do not be hearers of the word, but not doers. Don't look into this word, this glorious law of liberty, as he'll put it later. Don't look into the word of the Father, and then walk away and do nothing with this. In fact, two weeks from now, my sermon title is going to be, Do Something, you got to do something with the word. James, is he's all into that. Because here's the thing. Just like Adam and Eve, you know, on one side you've got your father. You've got your father's word. You've got the gospel. You've got the big story of history, and this is who you are in that story, and this is who God is in that story. That's on one side. On the other side, you got these desires. They're in your heart today. They're in my heart today, and these desires are whispering in your ear that your father is not trustworthy. I mean, don't, don't try to pretend with me. I, I get calls from you when you're desperate. I, I know. It's okay. We can be real in here. I'm the same. I have desires in my heart today that are telling me my father is not trustworthy. He's not that good. He's not that truthful. I should go follow my heart. I'd be better off if I were handling my life. I have that stuff inside of me. You have that stuff inside of you. And that's the, it's just like Adam and Eve. You got your father on one side, those desires on the other. And here's the thing I'm, where I'm going with this, beloved. Listen to me. You have to live in one of those realities. You've got to inhabit one of those realities, one of those stories. You can't be on the fence about this. You're going to get out of here today and go out and live with your body in the real world as if one of those is true. If. God is your father, love and serve him. If your desires are telling you the truth and God is a fraud and he's lying to you, then go serve your desires. But you cannot serve two masters here. You cannot be on the fence about this. Either God knows what's best for you or you do. And you are going to live this afternoon as if one of those is true. You're already living as if one of these is true. When you follow your desires away from the Father, you are acting as if your Father's a liar. When you turn away from things that will turn you away from Him and you run to Him, sometimes blind and you know, bleeding from both ears and you just are not even sure what you're doing except one thing, He must be true and everyone else can be a liar. If God isn't true, I'm done for. So I'm going to God no matter how crazy it might seem. When you do that, you're inhabiting that reality. So here I want to give you two things to do with your body. You've got to get real with this. So do I. Two bodily practices. And they're obvious, but I want to think about them for just a minute. My all's done. Number one, bodily practice. Something to do with your body to inhabit this reality of who your father is. Gratefully receive. Gratefully receive God's gifts to you. Here's the thing. If you're a child of the Father in heaven, there's not a single moment in your life when you're not surrounded by his gifts. If you are a child of God the Father, there is not a single moment of your existence where you are not surrounded by his gifts. It is not that you don't have. It's that you don't see what you have. You don't receive it. You don't enjoy it. It's like when your kids say they're bored. And you look at them and you think to yourself, you have more stuff than most aristocracy in history. How are you bored? It is not that we do not have the good gifts of God. Our life is dripping with the fatness of his love. We don't always receive it. I have times I sit at my desk I'm doing my thing and I am so full of self-pity I'm so full of pain and struggle and the hardness of it all that I just I can literally not see not receive not enjoy Not give thanks for the fact that my life is full of God's gifts. And you know, God's gifts, you want to talk about some crazy perspective on what's a gift? What is a gift? Is it a gift when you get like a stimulus check? Is it a gift when all of a sudden everyone in your life is like, you know, responding to you exactly the way you want them to? Is it a gift when, how about a gift, how about your suffering being a gift? You know, the early church, these people were out of their minds. You know what they said when they were beaten and imprisoned? They sang praise to God because they were, listen, counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Now, if if the cops came in today and dragged me out, and they weren't like good American cops, you know, they they like took me to some place and you know a black ops site somewhere, and they just you know maybe the CIA, they come get me and they just and I'm you know I'm strapped to something and they start torturing me, you know, because I'm a believer in Jesus. I don't think the first thought in my mind is going to be, I'm so blessed to be able to suffer with Jesus. What a gift. To be honored to suffer with Jesus. I don't think that's, that's never crossing my mind. Some of the stuff in your life that you should be receiving as a gift is the hard stuff. Christ counts you worthy to suffer. Man. But you, it's got to be in your body because you just like trauma, just like trauma lodges in the body. Gratitude and ingratitude also lodge in the body. I know people who are grumblers because it's habit. Because your body is so instinctively attuned to see what you don't have. You ever heard of negativity bias? It's like a psychological reality. Your brain gets a bias toward the negative. You actually literally do not physically even see the blessings of the Lord. You have to train your eyes to see the gifts of God. Like, I literally sometimes, I, when I get out of the car at a supermarket, I force myself to stop and notice the sky. Just breathe the air for a second, because I'm, I'm on a freight train of Ben Miller's life. I'm not seeing things. I don't have habits of seeing. you got to train your lips to say thank you. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I got the story exactly right, but my, my sister upstate, her, her, one of her, her little boys, one of my nephews, he, he has this thing he will say quite often, just un, unbidden. If something will happen, he'll just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I wish, I legitimately wish that were my instinct. I wish that came out of my mouth as easy as the grumbling and the snarling and the whatever. Whatever you got to train your hands to to lay hold of the gifts. you got to train your mouth to savor them. There was this moment. We had a ton of people at our house on Easter, and there was this moment. We all sat down at the table. We had sung. We had sat down. We had prayed. Everyone got their food. Everyone took their first bite, and there was like this 40-second pause because it was just so good. And we were just, like, having such a great time. The food was so awesome, and it was just just this moment of, like, I am tasting this. I've had a lot of meals I haven't tasted. I've had a lot of gifts in my life may as well have been sawdust. My hands aren't trained. My mouth isn't trained. My eyes and lips are not trained. And we are in a society today that is habituating us every day to feel like the good life is waiting for what you don't have. You know, it's not nothing's changed in thousands and thousands of years because I don't really understand how you can be in the garden of Eden. God has just said to you, here's every tree in the garden, freely eat. Oh, but you took one away. And my life is unlivable. And that's what our society, it habituates you by its advertising and just the the, the cultural life we are in. You are habituated, you are physically primed to see and notice and hunger for what you haven't got. And we have to habituate ourselves slowly in our very bodies to acknowledge and enjoy throughout the moments of our life, you know what, here's the reality, I have Jesus Christ and all this too. And then if I have gratefully received with my body training myself in this way, then if I actually don't have what I need, and there will be times when you do not have what you need, I will then, with that habit of a grateful heart and a grateful body, I'll be able then to go to my Father and ask with a heart that is not fretful and is not demanding. To ask and receive because I'm not asking to consume with my passions, as James will later say gratefully receive that's part of the role of the body second habit super important bountifully share there's something very interesting about being made in god's image and can i say to you nobody in the world escapes this because you're made in god's image whether you believe it or not but there's a very interesting thing about being made in god's image and that's and this is it you will never be completely happy until you're like him if God made you to mirror him, to be a reflection of him, you'll never be truly happy until you're like God. And part of what God wants to make you like is his generosity. God is generous. God is, I mean, it is insanity from our perspective, the, 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 the magnitude of how generous God is. And many of God's gifts are gifts that cannot be fully enjoyed unless you give them away and share them. Food is like this. Food is, Food's great. I like food, obviously. Food is a good gift, but the reality is if you know anything about food, you know that the deepest goodness of food is found when you're breaking bread with other people. You really want to enjoy food? Don't get your pathetic little fast food meal in your car and drive to your next appointment. Go sit down at a real table with real food, with real people, and break bread together. Now that's eating. That's feasting. That's what food was made for. And so many of God's gifts are like that. You will not enjoy them if it's all about you. You'll enjoy them in sharing. We often are, we're often lusting for things we have not been given because we're not loving with the things we have been given. But I'll say again, sharing is not an idea. I I, I love the idea of sharing. In fact, sometimes I feel like sharing. I have this warm feeling of generosity inside of me. That's not sharing. It is not a thought. It is not a feeling. Sharing is a practice. You have to do it with your body. You need to go find something in your life that God has given to you and find a way to physically share it. And in time, what you will find is this will become not just the habit. It will become the desire of your heart. I have so many areas in my life where I have not done this well, but I will tell you, I love hospitality. I have come to desire it. I desire people at my table. It will become the desire of your heart. I will tell you, if you're going to share well, you might need to put your phone down, but that's for another sermon. I thought, too, in closing, about the political influence of communities that imitate the Father like this, because I know there are a lot of Christians nowadays who don't think a sermon matters unless it has some political application. So let me give you the political application. You want to know how this changes political life? You know how small little communities that imitate the generosity of their father have a political influence in this social moment we find ourselves in? I I think we don't even realize how immense the influence can be. If there is one thing that characterizes our North American society more and more and more, it is the absence of generosity. I might go so far as to say that is kind of at the root of things. Our political model right now in this country is rival tribes fighting over limited goods and exacting payment for past debts. That's the political model. Rival tribes competing over limited resources and exacting payment for past debts. It is a model of war. It is actually not a political model in the old sense of a people who are learning to live together. It is a model for a fractured society that ends in civil war. That's our political model. And our elected leaders are feeding it. Shame on them. But this is part of what happens in a society. Beloved, please hear this. This is what happens in a society without a father. We have rejected God. And guess what happens when you reject God as a nation? You no longer have an infinite source of generosity from which to be generous. It is the end of political life, properly conceived but it's not so in the family of God. It is not so in the kingdom of God. This is our Father, the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from Him, and we bountifully share. I'll close with this quote from Richard Bachham. It's just so helpful. He says, The wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-ness, the wholeness of human life, individual life or social life, the wholeness of human life a complete life, a fulfilled life, it's possible only in relation to a center outside of the self, and that's God. Wholeness is a goal toward which you can move only in relation to a center which is already whole, and from which you can gain wholeness. And that means moving in one direction rather than others, rejecting the values and behavior which are inconsistent with that goal, refusing all the idolatries which dominate and diminish human life, in favor of that one love which can truly liberate and include all that is good. All that is good. So therefore, beloved, with Jesus, I would say to you, be perfect, be whole, as your heavenly Father is perfect, as He is whole. God grant it. Bless these things to our hearts and lives. Our great Father, thank you for the quality and the quantity of your everlasting love that never changes. In Jesus we pray, amen.